ditch the clowns on the left and the jokers on the right and join Michael Smirkanish right here in the middle. This is the Smirkanish podcast for independent minds. So what if anything has been done to prevent a repeat of what went on in the last cycle, but with a different outcome? In other words, Trump wanted Pence to reject votes that had been properly cast for Joe Biden. Is there anything that prevents a sequel that has a different ending? You might remember Matthew Seligman being a guest on this program. He's a constitutional scholar. He focuses on election law in particular, had been a fellow at the Center for Private Law at the Yale Law School, but now, I believe, is a fellow at the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford. It was his work that brought to my attention and others this observation that with regard to the Electoral Count Act of 1887, and don't let your eyes glaze over, this is important and interesting stuff, he said that if the ECA isn't revised, Under certain scenarios, all it would take for a future effort to succeed is a single corrupt GOP governor and a GOP-controlled House of Representatives. So what remedies are being undertaken? You may have seen a story in the last couple of days that says there's a bipartisan group of 16 senators who are now partnering to pass legislation that would clarify that 1887 law. This is Matthew Seligman. Professor, thanks for coming back to the program. Am I right now at Stanford? Yes, that's correct, and it's good to be back on. So uh, remind us, what is the Electoral Count Act of 1887? The Electoral Count Act of 1887 is a law that was passed by Congress after the crisis of 1876. So the crisis of 1876 was a Um, a disputed presidential election that is unlike any that we've ever experienced. So several states sent in competing slates of electors and the, uh, you know, Congress had to decide how to count the electoral votes. And there was no legal framework in place to do that at the time. There was the constitution that just said that Congress had to count the electoral votes, but it didn't say how Congress was supposed to resolve disputes about how to do that when there was some question about which electoral votes, which pieces of paper really spoke for the state. So after that crisis, which almost led to a showdown on Inauguration Day, uh, Congress stepped in a decade later and passed this law, uh, the Electoral Count Act of 1887, and it set up a legal framework for trying to resolve these disputes. Now, it worked pretty well for 133 years, but as we saw in 2020, it isn't, uh, it isn't structured in a way that can really prevent some types of political manipulation. Now, it held in 2020. It worked in 2020. But the events of 2020 also show that when there's political will to manipulate the results of a, a presidential election, this law makes it possible to do that in shockingly easy ways. Okay, and that give catastrophic us, risk is yeah, just give one us that the we nightmare. can Give us that nightmare scenario. Ma- map out how we could have had a different ending in 2020. So the way that we could have had a different ending in 2020 is, as you said, it just takes one governor and the House of Representatives. And this is why. So the law as it stands right now sets up a set of rules for resolving disputes when there are multiple slates of electors, purported slates of electors from a state. Now, you might remember that there were these so-called fake electors. Now, those were fake because you know, no state official had signed a certificate saying they were real. But let's imagine for a second that there was some dispute. There was, you know, there were two certificates that made it to Congress. Well, the law as it stands right now sets up the following rule. 
So if the chambers of Congress, the House and Senate agree on which of the slates to count, then that's one, the one that counts. But if they disagree, then it's the governor's slate that breaks the tie. It's the governor's slate that breaks the tie. And so what that means is that if a governor, say, a Doug Mastriano from Pennsylvania, sends in a bogus slate of electors, then all he needs is one chamber, the House of Representatives, to go along with it, and then the bogus slate counts. And that's what the law says right now, and that is the catastrophic risk of manipulation. So if it had been, maybe it's not Pennsylvania because he's not been elected and and probably won't be, although it's a possibility. But what if it had been Georgia? I mean, if if you look at 2020 and you say, what if Georgia had put forth two slates, one from Governor Kemp? Governor Kemp, I thought, was a stand-up guy in terms of how he handled these issues. But what if it weren't Kemp? What if it were a Trump acolyte and a Republican-controlled House of Representatives? That's all it would have taken. That's all it would have taken. Now, in 2020, the political pieces didn't line up for a couple of reasons. One is that Republicans didn't control the House of Representatives, and so there were never going to be enough votes to go along with this. And to their great good credit, and states like Georgia set up to enormous political pressure uh, to try to manipulate the results. And so this was also, you know, of a piece with the political pressure campaign on the Georgia Secretary of State, Ben Raffensperger. So, yes, in 2020, there were brave, courageous politicians who stood up to immense political pressure. But we can't trust that happening in the future. So next time through, will a governor stand up to that political pressure campaign or not? Well, we don't know. And because we don't know and because we can't trust that, we need to change the law to prevent political actors from having this type of power, this type of um, this type of authority to flip the results of a presidential election. What one final point with regard to 2020 and, and the nightmare scenario, your scenario is only problematic if it's coming down to a single state, right? It's got to be a razor thin race because all we're talking about is is one state's electors. Or I guess you're saying, well, maybe it could happen in multiple states. That's right. It could happen in multiple states. Now, of course, every time you add one more state that uh, that is necessary to flip the results of the Electoral College, it's one more governor you have to convince to go rogue. But so, yes, it is true that the closer the election, the easier it is for the steal to go through. But the risk exists no matter how close the election is. So what's the fix? And is this group of 16 senators doing that which is necessary, according to Matthew Seligman? Yes, I think that this bill, if it becomes law, will prevent almost all of the most catastrophic risks. And this is why. The fundamental principle underlying this reform and underlying the work that I've done is that politicians shouldn't be in the position to make the decision about the results of an election because politicians are hopelessly conflicted. And so what this bill does and what it should do is it attempts to say that courts, rather than politicians, should be the ones who are finally making the decisions about disputes about electors. And so that principle, if executed properly, is the best we can possibly do. Now, of course, I understand the fact that you know, there are many people out there who distrust courts, and particularly right now, in light of some recent decisions in the Supreme Court. So I understand that concern. But courts are, at the end of the day, the least bad option that we have. So to see why... Imagine that your political opponent is the one who's sitting in the speaker's chair and your political opponent is in the governor's mansion of the critical state. Would you rather have them making the decision or the courts? And to me, that's an easy call. 
what court in particular would be called upon? How would this work? So ultimately, it would end up in the Supreme Court. So the way the bill is structured right now is it says that if there's a dispute about uh, the governor's certification, so after all the recounts, after all you know the other court cases, it comes time for the governor to sign the elector's certificate. And if there's a dispute about whether the electors, the governor signs the right certificate or not, well, then that goes to a panel of three federal judges. They decide whether the governor signed the right certificate, and there's automatic appeal to the Supreme Court. And so that's an expedited process that puts federal courts in the position to make the final determination about whether the governor signed the legitimate certificate or not. I don't know, Professor. I don't know that my audience is going to have a lot of faith in this in a world of what we're always 5-4, what's Anthony Kennedy going to do, and now it's it's 6-3. I don't know that that's going to provide a, a necessary dose of confidence. I understand the concern, and that that concern ultimately flows from the fact that we live in a, in a world of flawed human institutions. And so the question is, which is the least bad institution right. to make this decision? <laughs> and, you know, and the alternative, to, to put it in concrete terms, is would you rather have Kevin McCarthy making that decision? And would you rather have whichever Republican governor you trust least make that decision? Because that's the alternative. Now, it's also true that federal courts and the Supreme Court in particular, you know, they are pretty good about these issues, notwithstanding whatever you think about other court cases. Mm -hmm. The reality remains that the Supreme Court did not intervene in the presidential election of 2020. Not once. True. It denied cert on every case. And the lower federal courts correctly decided every single one of the court challenges President Trump won zero of those cases, except for one small case about a handful of ballots in Pennsylvania. So whatever you think about gun decisions, whatever you think about abortion decisions, which I recognize are highly contentious and people have a lot of concerns about the way the present Supreme Court is deciding those cases. When it comes to these issues and when the alternative is the member of the House of Representatives that you trust least, the courts are regrettably not as bad as that. Well, you have framed a great conversation for my audience and me, and I really appreciate it. So thanks for your willingness to come back and, and keep us advised on this important issue. Of course. Good to be on. Matthew Seligman, now a fellow at the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take the bait. Which would you feel more confident, comfortable in having ultimate control over which between competing electors for a particular state is going to be seated, is going to be counted. You want the House of Representatives to make that decision or the federal courts and ultimately the Supreme Court of the United States? I, I actually wasn't thinking Roe. I was thinking Bush v. Gore, which if I'm not mistaken, fact check me on this, was also a five to four decision. So, so therein lies the fix. A bipartisan group of 16 senators now behind legislation, 16 senators, I don't know what the House will do, but they would clarify this 1887 law that President Trump and his allies tried to use as part of their attempt to overturn 2020. What would they do? They would more clearly define the role of the states and give the ultimate authority to the courts and not to the Congress. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS. Sirius XM Channel 124 and on the SXM app.
Anthony is in Connecticut on the subject of the Electoral College. Anthony, what did you make of my conversation with my guest? Um, I, I, I had to agree. I think the courts are the least bad option. I, I like his comment saying it's a human institution, so everything's flawed. But I think, you know, sending it up through a court system, I mean, he said it would have to go through federal court first and then to the Supreme Court. I think that's better than rolling the dice, having any sort of secretary of state or governor choose. Um, my only worry about that is just, I mean, it's just a small worry, and I think other people might have it, is I know the right, especially Mitch McConnell's been working to fill the federal court system with, you know, right-leaning justices, and that almost be, being like the only criteria for him to give you one of those positions. So I, I could see where people would worry there, but I really do think the courts would make, the, hopefully make the right decision if it ever got to that. And I just, yeah. I, 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 could, I, I would never want to sit and worry about a state and a, or a secretary of state and a governor making that call. You'd feel more confident confident if it were in the courts than in the Congress for the reasons that you've stated. It would have made for a great survey question, but I think it would be lopsided because most would would see it the way you see it and the way that my guests saw it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it would make for a great question. I mean, I just hopefully we just never get down that far again. I mean, it's sad that it happened the first time, but now, I mean, it's a, it's a real worry, I think, among Americans that, you know, is democracy as is our democracy as strong as, you know, we kind of always believed it was. Yeah, well, soon we're going to find out. Anthony, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Justin in Raleigh, North Carolina. Greetings. Hi. Hey, Mike. Thanks for taking the call. Yeah, I I fully agree with your guest as well. I mean, what he's talking about could happen in any scenario. He he contexted it in the idea of a GOP situation, trying to take the vote and change it. It could be the other way around. Four or eight years from now, you never know. Um, And the way he, he positioned it is it's separating the powers across the branches of government. And that's what the founders always wanted to do. That's what makes our democracy so great. And that's what this bill is trying to do as well, it sounds like. And the second thing I got to say is, too, just stepping back, like, think about what you just did. Like, you had a guest on there. I got to commend you, man. You you had a guest who was able to even admit that it wasn't a perfect solution. I, I think that speaks a lot about your guest and you and your show. Like, you never hear that kind of thing out there. And, you know, I've got a Facebook group where I've got people who are on it and we talk politics in a nice way and we analyze it just like people on your show, man. It's called political lane. And it's, it's awesome because like, you know, we can talk about topics just like you guys and, and, you know, admit flaws, but still say it's, it's you know, the least worst option, man. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Cer- cer- certainty is without credibility in my view, by the way, promote my newsletter, please on your Facebook page. In fact, I want everybody I have to have, and I will keep doing it. Yep. Awesome. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm so darn proud of the Smirconish.com daily newsletter on a day like today, actually every day, because we work so hard to bring such a balanced mix of, uh, of views and news sources. We don't double up unless there's an extraordinary circumstance. I'm always looking, of course, at the Washington Post and New York Times. So they're going to be represented uh, today. Do you know that? Do you know what I linked to from the Times today? Nothing about January sixth. Nothing about Donald Trump, but a very moving, compelling obituary of a guy who survived Auschwitz and now is gone at age ninety-four. I think uh, last living on Long Island, and credits learning a magic trick with providing him with the strength that he needed to get through that that ordeal. Anyway, the point is the newsletter is really great and I want to make sure you're subscribed to it. It costs absolutely nothing and it is worthy. So uh, thanks for the compliment. Um, Okay, this is Robert driving through Virginia. Hi, Robert. What are you thinking? 
Hi, I just wanted to leave you with a thought, and then I'll hang up. Tell me. The, uh, 22nd, the 22nd Amendment to the United States Constitution states that no person shall be elected to the office of president twice. It doesn't say that no person shall serve the office of president twice. If former President Trump continues to maintain his position that he won the election, and if he does not concede, can he legitimately run for president? (laughs) That's really a creative argument. Section one, no person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice and no person who has held the office of president or acted as president for more than two years of a term to which some other person was elected president shall be elected to the office of the president more than once. Yeah, but he wasn't seated, right? It wasn't honored. He may believe that, but he didn't he didn't get to hold the office. So, I mean, you wouldn't say you wouldn't say you wouldn't say to Hillary Clinton, well, you won you you think you won because you won the popular vote. So in your head, you believe you were rightfully elected or Al Gore in 2000. Therefore, we're not going to allow you to run again. So no is the answer. But creative. I'm giving you I'm giving you credit for for your for your attempt. And I I appreciate it. Ronnie, you're in Georgia. What did you most want to say? I just wanted to talk about it. Ronnie, 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 well, Ronnie. Election- Wait, Hello? Ronnie, you, you you faded. So start over. You most wanted to say what? I want to talk about the people who um, said this is all coming from one side and it's all one sided. When when the election ended, all we were hearing is that the, it was stolen and they have proof. Why didn't they? I mean, now is the time for them to come out and tell the one six, the committee bring all the proof that they said they had the Giuliani's and the pillow guy. And where's the proof? I, I mean, this is the time, right? It's just kind of funny that when you say the pillow guy, we all know who you're talking about. Like the whole world knows it's Mike Lindell. You know, he's, <laughs> are there enough, are there enough pillows to be purchased to fund the torrent of ads that he still runs? How many pillows can you sell? To, to a limited audience, because I assume that if you're in blue state America, you're not you're not using his pillow. Maybe I'm mistaken. But how many times can you just sell the same very narrowly focused product? Or am I wrong? There's just so many people out there and they all need pillows. Uh, sorry, Ronnie, I took you in a different direction. I get your point. Your point is, you know, put up or shut up. And there never was such a showing. Hi, James. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Greetings. What are you thinking? Well, Michael, um, the problem that I have with your guest is he comes up with a an imperfect solution, and um, it's my opinion that probably the best solution we could hope for would be um, a constitutional amendment to eliminate the electoral college. Because as an educated as an educated white man, um, four years of college, I'm a truck driver now, but that's by choice. It seems to me that I don't need anyone to vote for me and that seems like that's what the electoral college was for in the first place Um, well i think the electoral college was to was to distance from the the unwashed masses now of course if we got rid of the electoral college and and we would do what go to a a straight popular vote yes absolutely the reason why is because we have a relegated system right now in the electoral college that elects a president who is term limited yet we elect an unlimited, uh, you know, Congress people to unlimited terms just by a popular vote. 
You know, I haven't had that conversation here for quite some time. It's one of those. It used to be one of those that would come up every couple of years where you'd have an intense conversation about whether America is ready for uh, a popular vote or are small states now going to get the shaft? Is anybody going to campaign anywhere outside of a major media market, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what stopped me from continuing to have that dialogue is that everyone simply looked at it as if I'm a Republican, I'm for maintaining the Electoral College. If I'm a Democrat, given Gore and given Hillary, uh, just two incidents recently where the popular vote winner, both Democrats nevertheless lost. People suited up in their partisan armor, red state or blue state. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is, though, you have a popular vote, which means nothing in a presidential campaign. And you're, you're, we're electing the most powerful position based on electoral college only. Because you look at George Bush, he lost the popular vote, won electoral college. The argument can be made both ways. Hey, I'll, I'll, you, you've raised it. If people want to have at it, thank you, James. Drive safely. If people want to have at it on that subject, I'm, I'm happy to let them do so. Okay. Uh, abolishing the electoral college. Why do we still have the electoral college or the fix that was offered by Professor Seligman now of Stanford Law School as to why this reform of the Electoral College Act of 1887 is probably the, the best out of a series of, of bad outcomes. It's all fair game. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. Dan, you're in Greenville, South Carolina. Greetings. Thank you for your patience. What did you want to say? Hey, Michael, I, I think the courts need to make any kind of decision that you're talking about. Yeah. But I, I wanted to add about this. Our Supreme Court now is one of the most unpolitical units that this court's seen in a long time. These guys are true constructionists. I mean, they had a chance to be political with that border decision they had on last day, and they chose not to. And, and you know, as an attorney, Roe v. Wade was a political decision that they cleaned up. Well, listen, your glass half full is bolstered by the fact that the Supreme Court didn't intervene in the 2020 election. I mean, if you're if we're worried, if we're worried about how the court might meddle, we just had an exercise where they had that shot through a variety of cases that they could have accepted and they didn't. Exactly right. And, you know, everybody that is complaining about the Supreme Court is letting their representative and their senator off the hook. Because it's, it's, it's those people that are failing this country by not being able to come together and making laws that they could come up with 60 people that can agree with. That's Dan, embarrassing to me. They, Dan, they, they I, throw everything at the court. I said, not only here, I said on CNN. You know, the, the things that I say here don't get a rise, and I don't say them to get a rise, but some of the things I say here on POTUS, they do get a rise on CNN, including the day that I said the, the Supreme Court is not comprised of a bunch of mullahs. Remember that people went batshit because they wanted to cast them as being religious actors. But if you took the time to read what Alito said in Roe versus Wade, I did. It sounds to me like you did as well. Absolutely. It's not it's not the way that it was characterized. It's not the way that it was characterized. No, no um, and I hope you get a show on CNN full time because you're I the have kind one of person no. that will clean CNN up. No, I mean, during you should be on every night of the week. Dan, I don't want to be on every night of the week. I, I've spent the last well, week dodge, dodging invitations not to be on. I just, I've got my plate is so full. So you're kind we in need saying you that. On. 
You're nice to say that. Thank you very much. All right. I thank you. No, thank you. Uh, Tom is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Greetings, Tom. Hi. Good morning. Hey. I just wanted to come in. In spite of all the uh, blowhardness about uh, doing away with the uh, electoral college, neither party wants to do it because all of a sudden then they have to spend money in the three biggest media markets in the country, plus Boston and San Francisco and some other large media markets. and They don't have to spend a dime in any of them now. So it makes it cost a hell of a lot more than it does now. In other words, if we were a strict popular vote election, all of a sudden places uh, that right now are in the bag for one or the other. What, what are you thinking? Like now you got to spend in the L.A. media market on a presidential race where in a presidential race you don't have to or in New York City. In a presidential race, the blue side does right. not have to spend money in New York, Chicago, right. Los mm-hmm. Angeles. San Francisco, Boston, mm-hmm. all giant media markets. They'll spend a dime there. It's a lot cheaper to spend money in North Carolina where I live or in, you know, in in Missouri or places, states like Michigan. I mean, you got Detroit, but the big media markets, they're not spending a dime in any of them now. It's a good observation. It's a really good observation. If you're, Thank you. If you're running the DNC, California is not a consideration vis-a-vis a presidential race. Uh, Scott, you're in Iowa. Thank you for all these phone calls. Thank you always to the people who call. I'm grateful to you. Go ahead, Scott. Hey, Michael. Um, one option that I always thought of was um, the way that Maine and Nebraska does their electoral college, divided up by um, congressional districts and then the two extra electors that they have for the Senate that they mm-hmm. apply that to the popular vote. I always thought that would be a better it would force them to um, campaign more in areas that maybe they didn't, parts of uh, Republicans and parts of uh, California and New York and Democrats more in the Midwest where they might get more votes. Yeah, I like it. A hybrid model uh, that could make some sense and be offsetting. I just don't know. I don't want to squelch. Thank you, Scott. I don't want to squelch anybody's enthusiasm. I just don't know what prospect there is to get anything done of a monumental consequence in this country at this time. Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds.